Being with your changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode cloud servers. Head to Linode.com slash changelog. This episode is brought to you by Linode, our cloud server of choice. It is so easy to get started with Linode. Servers start at just five bucks a month. We host Changelog on Linode cloud servers and we love it. We get great 24 seven support. Zeus like powers with native SSDs, a super fast 40 gigabit per second network and incredibly fast CPUs for processing. And we trust Linode because they keep it fast. They keep it simple. Check them out at linode.com slash changelog. Welcome to GoTime, a podcast featuring a diverse panel and special guests discussing cloud infrastructure, distributed systems, microservices, Kubernetes, Docker, oh, and also Go. We record live every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Eastern, New Pacific. Join the community of Slack with us in real time during the show in the GoTime FM channel and go for Slack. Follow us on Twitter. We're at GoTimeFM. Listen live at changelaw.com slash live or subscribe at changelaw.com slash GoTime. And now on to the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome to GoTime. This week, we're going to be talking about structuring Go programs. I think this is a question that pretty much everybody asks at some point, and we all probably make that mistake where we do it what we consider the wrong way later and yell at ourselves a little bit. Joining me today, I have Johnny Borsico. Hello did there. I say it right this time? You did say it right this time. All right. I'm learning. <laughs> I didn't like have my recording from last week to say for sure. <laughs> Um, we have a guest, Corey Lanou or Lanoy? Lanou. Lanou. I didn't get a chance to ask you beforehand in that 20 minutes of downtime. <laughs> and we have Matt Ryer, who wanted to take the back seat today and just pretend like he was a guest. Thanks for having me. <laughs> All right. So if Matt sounds better today, it's because he's at his company's HQ in their podcasting lab or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. I mean, I'm in Costa Mesa which is south of LA, so it's Californian weather. I've actually come here to cool off, uh, given the heat wave that's happening in Europe at the moment. Um, and, and they wanted me to mention that they are hiring. So if there's gophers out there that are looking for work, careers.veritone.com, V-E-R-I-T-O-N-E. And uh, yeah, you know, do some computers in that. Well, and because I'm in the GoJobs channel all the time, the very first question you're going to get is, the, is that remote? That is a great question. And... You have to ask through the process. I, I'm encouraging. I'm encouraging that, um, but currently that's not the way that they do it. But I think if there's enough people that ask that question, yeah. Okay, awesome. So I want to start off by, I guess, just sort of discussing why is app structure something that we all care about so much. You know, why is this a question that everybody asks? Why is it something that anybody who gets you know joins or starts writing in Go is going to be like? You know, how do I? structure my code? Where do I put my files? Why is this something that matters? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And essentially, like when we learn, when we're learning Go, we tend to do it just in a single file, or sometimes we even use the playground that's hosted online. We think of it as very kind of small scale. And in practice, when you're going to build something, you the first thing you have to start doing is making files and folders and things. So it's kind of like, it's the first thing you do, but it's the last thing we ever talk about. So I feel like 
it is, this this podcast is going to be uh, hopefully shed some light on this. But yeah, essentially for me, it's about maintainability. The structure of the program is really all about how can you quickly go to the place you need in order to work on the thing you need to work on. And good structures, good file names, good folder names, this, this stuff all helps with that process. So to, to add to that, um, I think there's a certain level of a sort of expectation, right? When, when you especially first start to navigate a project, um, or if you're in a team with multiple projects, multiple repositories, um, there's a, um, you expect that when you're going from project to project, you're going to have, you know, a similar structure, whatever it is that your team has sort of a, um, standardized on, right? So if, if you, if you're building, uh, web applications, you're going to expect the same structure from project to project. If you're building APIs, you might expect something different. Um, pure backend services, networked applications, you're going to expect certain, certain, uh, um, like a, a certain shape, right? For the repository where things go. Um, this definitely helps with sort of a readability and knowing kind of where to go, how to navigate, right? Um, um, repositories and, and, and projects. Um, I think what we will probably de- uh, um, definitely touch on is what, what is the expected or what, what should be the expected, um, organizational sort of structure of certain kinds of programs, right? So if I'm writing a program, if I'm writing an application that is based on a, on a, on a framework, right? There's going to be certain expectations, you know, that the framework itself is imposing. If I'm writing something, you know, say some sort of gRPC service, right? There's, there's some things you're going to do that you won't do with a, with a traditional web application. So again, it's all about the expectations that you're, you're setting by, by adopting a, a particular layout structure. Yeah. And Go itself puts some constraints on too, because obviously everything inside a folder is grouped logically as a package. So that's important. That's significant. We have to know about that. One of the interesting things that's different for Go to other languages is nested folders don't really do anything special. They don't represent nested packages or anything. So there's no special privileges by having folders nested. And sometimes in other languages, that is the case. Uh, So that's worth, you know, there are some rules that are worth learning and necessary to learn. But of course, there's still within that, there's still lots of different ways to do things. Like, do you just bundle everything into one package? Do you break everything out into tiny packages? Or is it somewhere in between? And when do you do these things? And all that is, it's kind of an, almost an art form on its own, don't you think? Yeah, so let me ask this question, because we've all been doing Go for a while. When you start a project, and let's say you know it's going to be a medium-sized project, what's the first thing you do? Do you just create your main file? Do you create 20 different folders? Like, what is it that you do? Um, I can say that my guess is there's not a right way to do this, but I'm very much the type of person who just starts with one flat structure. And then later, once I've got some more code there, then I'll start trusting myself to separate. Because I've found that every time I try to separate ahead of time, it's you can plan for a lot of things, but I feel like you just... You, you miss something like you miss that one edge case or something that throws your whole thing, you know, makes it, you have to throw it out the door, throw it out the window, whatever you want to say. And I, I've just found that I do a little bit better if I get something down that I can work from and then I come back and refactor. Yeah. So you sort of let the structure emerge from the work you're doing rather than try and imagine it up front. And I think that as a principle is great. That's actually how I do it too. And I tell people, cause, cause you know, when you go and look at an open source project, 
it's got its own structure and it feels, it feels important and it feels significant. So it's very natural, I think, for people, especially junior devs, to think, well, I need to learn how they made those decisions. But really, they probably evolved too. They probably started with something different, probably flat, and they started to pull things out as and when they needed to. And doing that in response to real pain is, is the right time to do it because it's very clear the problem you're trying to solve for yourself. Uh, if you try and imagine up front, like you say, John, you might get it right, but maybe you won't. Um, and, you know, as we actually do the coding, we, we learn so much. So, yeah, it's, it's something that I think people should be a bit more relaxed about than they are. Don't worry about it. You can worry about it later. I, I say worry about it a little bit, um, just the right amount and whatever that is for you, that, that, that's going to be a sweet spot that you have to like find, right? So for example, my sweet spot is that if I know I'm building, um, you know, I'm working on a project that's going to have some sort of a, um, a binary, right? As a, as a work product. Um, so the first thing I do is, you know, I open up the, the, the project, um, and then I go and create a CMD folder followed by the name of the project. That way when I do my builds, you know, I get the right name for the executable and in, in there I create a main.go, right? And my main.go, my, my objective is to keep it as thin and light as possible, right? So that, at that point, I'm okay, well, from this main.go, um, what am I going to call in, right? What, and the way we see the, the, the rest of the, the application, right? Which is basically providing the package naming sort of a, um, structure. What am I going to be pulling in? What do I need to actually start doing work from this main.go, right? And obviously in your main.go, this is where I'm sort of reading options, um, uh, arguments being passed in. If I have to do any sort of uh, initialization or configuration reading from the environment, where, wherever they're coming from, I'm doing all that in there and basically trying very, very hard to keep any sort of business logic out of that main.go. And then from there, once I've got a starting point there, then I basically um, come out, if you will, of, of that main.go and then start working on the rest of the package. So in, in the past, I used to sort of uh, follow an approach whereby I create a sort of a PKG folder at the root level of the project and then start to create, you know, sort of a, um, things in there as well. I've sort of gotten away um, from, from that model. Basically, I try to keep go files at the top level now. Um, but I've gone back and forth and there's, you know, it's, it's not a wrong way to do it. It's just a slightly different way to do it. You know, you, you package up all your sort of uh, go files in, 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 a, in a own directory. This is usually useful if you have, um, if what you're building is it has a bunch of different assets in there. Maybe there's like some, maybe you need to produce some, some HTML and CSS and JavaScript. So you don't, I don't want, I don't like that's all that stuff sort of being right next to my go code. So I might create a PKG folder for that. But other than those sort of slightly nuanced kind of things, like basically I start with that main.go for the executable. And sort of work my way out from there. I used to do a thing where I my my main program or the command, the program itself, the package main thing, that would always just call out to another package. And that allowed me, helped me with testability, and it helped me with the fact that this package could be used now in more places. But I kind of stopped doing it because I realized I never used that package in any other place. You know, so I only ever ended up using it in in the main program. So now I, 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 sort of, I, I sort of bundle things. I still won't put much in the, in the main file, in the main .go file, um, because I feel like there's some more storytelling opportunities with having different files alongside that. But uh, yeah, so Johnny, do you, do you tend to do that where you call out to another package or do you, do you have the actual logic inside that main package? I, I try to, 
I, I usually call out because I think I'm, I, it's really hard for me to sort of, uh, like I'm really trying, I'm usually really trying to keep package main as, as small as possible. Um, and, and I usually like almost immediately basically, you know, and, and call in, right. Like a, a different package, right. The, the, cause to me, the, the having that entry point is that's the only purpose it should solve. Right. So I'm not defining sort of domain models in there. I'm not creating sort of, uh, um, um, sort of a, sort of the experimental sort of, you know, when you start out, you know, everything's inside of main.go. Like I find that to be, to be a, a little messy, but that's the way I think, right? It's not right or wrong. That's just the way I think. So I usually end up most like 99% of the time. I immediately, you know, basically pull in a, pull in a, a package. I will say that like one of the things I do really like about go is the ability to take something that's in main and pull it out and throw it somewhere else is like, it's so easy to do. That I think that's why, like, when you say there is no right or wrong, I completely agree because, like, it, there are some languages where I feel like you have to define all the stuff up front, and that's not the case in Go at all. And because of that, you can kind of get away with just moving things around. I will say that I I would imagine that part of our differences in how we design stuff also depends on the context of like how we're doing it, like whether or not we're with a big team, um, whether or not we're you know, basically what we're building, all sorts of things like that, because. I mean, I know I personally tend to work on projects that are very, very small. Like at most, two or three developers, are, that's very, very common for me. And as a result, what I have to worry about is very, very different from what you know somebody with a bigger team is going to have to worry about. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting, actually. Um, I think context probably does matter. And also, if you've already got an existing code base that has some patterns... It's probably worth, for the sake of it, just following those patterns, just being consistent, even if you don't love it or there's some some trade-offs you're not happy with. Uh, just consistency is probably an important if you already have that. You always know there's going to be a 2.0, right? So that's kind of where he, you know, you can push it down the road. Um, but I agree. I think productivity is really important. One of the things that I really try to focus on when I talk to people about package design is I try to get them to understand you need to ship the product. So you need to get it across the line and we can always refactor later. And again, I'm not I'm not also arguing for like, oh, we can always push everything down the road and someday we'll have this massive refactor. Clearly there's there's gotta be a, a boundary and there's gotta be some give and take. Uh, but primarily I, I find just write the code, get it to work. Um, things kind of follow it on their own after that anyway. And Go tends to be really fast to refactor excuse me, tends to be really fast to refactor. So it's not like other languages where you know you're writing all this huge technical debt. And I think that's the one thing in Go, yes, we have technical debt, but I've never felt technical debt in Go like I have in any other language. And I think that's pretty refreshing and allows me to kind of just throw caution to the wind a little bit, get that code written, and then refactor it later and not really worry about missing my deadlines. I think the lack of OO and class hierarchies and stuff really helps with the with how good it is at refactoring in Go because you know you it's, you te we tend not to build these big complicated structures that are then difficult to pull apart later. Everything tends to be quite flat, and that sort of gives you more power. But what about f file names? Do you have any? Now again, there are some constraints and some conventions in Go. If it's underscore test dot Go, that's a test file. So uh, are there any other things like that? I don't think there are. But but do you have other patterns for file names and things? I think one of the patterns, and this isn't my pattern by any means, is if you have a package called foo, your entry point is foo.go. 
And because a lot of times people always ask me, what's the first file? And so I find if you follow that pattern of naming your file after your directory name, you know that when you open up that directory, the first thing you should go to is there. That's kind of where the meat of it is, the description of it. Things are going to fan out from there. Uh, that helps a lot. Um, that's kind of one of the bigger ones that I've adopted, and it's worked well. It feels really strange at first because it feels like an echo, and you're always told in programming, don't echo anything. And you know, and here I'm going to echo this naming pattern, but it, for me it works out fine. I think even having, what, main.go, you don't have to name it main.go. No. So like that's just kind of a... Yeah, it, there's no like you, we've even said main.go here several times, inferring like we assume the main function's in there, and if somebody did a program or you know wrote something that didn't have it, it'd be really confusing. Yeah, that's true. I don't know. Beside that, like, do I'm trying to think if I remember any projects that did anything with like uh, OS specific build files, um, mm -hmm. but I don't remember exactly what I saw. Yeah, there's uh, there's another convention. There is that. There's another one if you have underscore Linux and underscore Darwin and things, right? They are. The tool, the tooling does take that into account when building. So there are some rules that are worth learning. But what about like, do you tend to structure your packages by, by responsibility? Like, do you have like a? I, I'll tend to have a if I've got if I've got a concept of comments in a in a program, I'll have a comments dot go, and then that'll try. I'll try and have everything to do with comments in that file. That's different to other languages that I've worked with in the past where I might have uh, I might have models where I have the the comments model is amongst other models inside that how do you how do you do it I personally I personally find that if I'm not working in a framework where where some of these uh, conventions are being sort of enforced and so this um, like um, configuration by convention kind of things, um, ex things that are sort of expected to be named a certain way. Um, I, I tend to sort of um, run away from that model quite quickly. Uh, I follow the same sort of uh, um, domain-based sort of logic, right? If, if you know, to, to use uh, your, your example, comments, I might have everything having to do with comments in there. So I wouldn't have a, a models, that, you know, um, um, folder or models that go with a, with a comment type in there. I might go with, with the name of the thing. That way, it also not only sort of keeps it... Um, um, smaller, keeps the file smaller, um, because it only has to do with things that related to comments. Um, but also sort of allows me to sort of, again, not navigability, right? I can sort of jump to what I need to, I know exactly where to go. And if I have a comments underscore, you know, test, I go, I know all my tests, and my comments aren't there, right? So otherwise, if I have a models, I go or types, I go, or I, I tend to see some of these things, things in, in, in projects here and there, or a models folder with the different models in there. Then I, that means I still have to jump to some. Maybe there's a controls folder, right? And maybe there's a maybe there's a utils folder. God forbid. Maybe there's a you know like these sort of a like it's it's I'm 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 organizing by by the domain I'm working with, not by some predefined sort of you know like preset way of doing it. Unless I'm working in the framework, then everybody understands right that, that what the expectations of the framework are. Right, that we can we can all be productive because we know all the models are in the models folder. We know all the controls are in the controls folder, right? So it's not wrong by any means. It's just what is the expectation of the team, right? One of the things I find, um, especially because I teach a lot of corporate groups, is that when you try to approach them and tell them things like, you know, comments go in its own package, and the first thing you get back from them, well, 
how do I save it, right? Like I have to have this database layer and, and I'm used to everything being in models and I pass a model to my data layer and it just saves it. And it's really confusing because you're trying to explain to them and of course they're new to go and you're trying to show them, well, no, comments can, you know, you can use dependency injection, right? You can go ahead and when you create that new comment, you can give it its method that saves it. And what that allows you to do is really to create all your testing, like you were saying, around comments in testing, all the functionality around comments in that package and do everything you want to. Saving it has actually nothing to do with comments. That's actually not a responsibility you care about. And that is probably the single hardest concept that you try to impart on people that are new to Go. And that really does come back into package and, and layout because they, they immediately instinctually coming from these other backgrounds, like, well, no, it's got to be a model. It's got to have the data layer and, and all these things. And, and they just don't understand. And then once you show them how to break it apart and you just inject it with something as simple as an, a one line interface that has a save and a, you know, or, or a load, right? Like there's this interface is just itty bitty. And now you don't care about it at all. It does. It's not even something you test anymore. You're just done with it. Um, that is liberating, but it's hard. That is a hard paradigm to understand. This episode is brought to you by X-Team. X-Team is the world's most energizing community for developers. Work from anywhere in the world with leading brands, experience belonging unlike any other community, and stay energized by doing more of what you love. In this segment, I talk with Ryan Chartrand, X-Team CEO, about their global community and whether or not culture requires an office. You know, I often hear people say that, you know, you can't have culture unless you have an office, which is just hilarious. And, and really, you know, I think what's going to make remote companies truly figure this out moving forward is the same thing that we did. You know, we looked at the past 20, 25 years of communities online, you know, primarily in the, in the gaming space, because that's where a lot of the, the biggest, most successful communities online have been, you know, World of Warcraft, one of the longest standing communities out there. And, and looking at how are they able to engage people so insanely powerfully, despite being all around the world, and so we looked at that for inspiration and, and we've built this community and, and remote company around those same sort of values and you know ways of bringing people together to engage uh, in unique ways. Like today, we, we had an, an RPG in, in a Slack channel that went for an hour and it brought people from 30 countries around the world all at the same time to play this RPG together and, and get energized from it and use that energy to then spend the rest of their day doing great work. All right, if you're looking to join one of the most energizing communities for developers out there, work from anywhere in the world with leading brands and get supported to do more of what you love, then head to xteam.com to learn more. Again, xteam.com. It's funny because like, I feel like I... Like Corey and I deal with completely different audiences in, in the sense that his audience is probably corporate people bringing a trainer in. And a lot of times I'm dealing with people who have not the most programming experience in the world, especially like web development, stuff like that. So I've actually taken the exact opposite approach of if you've seen something like Rails or any of those others, you've probably seen MVC where it's thrown into a models view or a folder and a views folder. And I'm like, it's just going to be easier to start with that. And like, let me just show you a way that you can get stuff going with that. And then I, I very much do encourage people 
to spend some time refactoring. You know, try a different layout, try reorganizing your stuff, try doing something different. But I want them to see that like you can get productive very quickly in Go, even if you don't do things, you know, the exact perfect way, or you know, maybe it's not the way you're going to do it ten years from now. But it's good to have something to start with. Um, so I, I think that like just knowing your audience and like knowing what all they have to learn. Sometimes when you're just learning about all these things, like you have no idea how to encrypt passwords. You have no idea what CSRF is. You have no idea like about all these different things. Trying to tell them, okay, now we need to learn about context and we need to learn about like, you know, what's the context of this comment where it could change from time to time. Um, that's a lot to wrap your head around. So I think just, you know, having a way to sort of skip over that is very valuable for some projects. So I, I think sometimes you can get caught up and think, well, what if we have to refactor this later? But I mean, like Corey said, there's always a chance for a V2, but also like it's not that hard to start pulling things out and redoing it if you need to. I've done this to my own projects several times, and I actually do this pretty frequently as a way to, like if I have an idea, like I want to see what if I design my code like this, what does it turn out like, what are the flaws? I will take like an existing database or an existing app, and I'll be like, can I rewrite this in this other way and like see how it does, like see what I think of it. I think you should be very careful with um, with the assumption, unless you know for sure that you are going to have a chance to do a V2, right? You should be very careful with the assumption that you're going to get a chance to refactor so, that code because, I mean, under the right pressure, I mean, that thing is shipping as you built it. So I guess, yeah, it depends on how you mean. But so, like, I guess I say that in the sense that a vast majority of people who are learning, at least with me, are building something that is realistically not going to be, like, they're building the same thing I'm building. So, like, we don't need a million of the same app. So they're probably going to build something new at some point. Um, and even if you don't get a full V2, you can go back and refactor some stuff. It's not like you have to completely rewrite from scratch. Um, so sometimes when I say V2, I don't necessarily mean, you know, we're going to throw this whole thing out the door. Because I, I do agree with you, that's way more rare in real businesses than, than it actually... Like, I, I'd say that probably doesn't happen a lot in real businesses. I think this is actually a lesson for those real businesses that we're talking about. They need to, the you know, they need to make the time and give the developers the space so that they can do refactoring. It's vital, and you know, I say this a lot, but we are obsessed with how long is this going to take to get done the first time. We feel like it's we're going to create a product and then it's done and then we deploy. And there's it's a little bit like that, but in a lot of ways, it's really not like that much at all. If the project's long and it's going to have a, it's going to be successful, then it's going to have a big maintenance cost to it, and part of that is refactoring to make the future maintenance easier. Those some small investment early can really pay dividends later. So we need to empower developers to do that, and and engineers out there need to kind of figure, learn this, learn why this is important, and make the case for it as well. So sometimes, because you can't expect necessarily like a manager doesn't know, they think of it as as a, we do the dev, we do this. Sometimes they, that's literally how they organize it as well. So yeah, there, there needs to be more of a conversation around the value of refactoring. And you need to let a team know that they can make mistakes. You can structure the application in however you like. You can get it wrong because you know, hopefully you've got a culture that lets you then fix that. But, but that culture is, is a privilege at the moment for sure. And uh, it's quite rare in my experience. Yeah. One of the projects that I worked on, uh, worked with some really bright engineers. Um, not sure why I was there, but they were pretty smart. Uh, and what they did is they really kind of instilled in me is that you take your first pass, 
and then before you push it up, you refactor, and then you push that up. Before you actually start your pull request, you refactor again. And it got to the point mm-hmm. where, you know, when I did any any feature work, it went through two or three fairly significant refactors from myself um, because you get your rough draft, you get it working, uh, and then you refactor, and then you refactor again, and you really kind of add that last polish. And at first I thought, because, uh, you know, I'm an entrepreneur, I like to ship code, I like to, you know, get it out there and just be done. And I thought that it was just a lot of wasted time with that refactoring. And I found in the long run, it made you think a lot more about it. And then it also started making me think, next time I did a feature, that refactoring really lent kind of like a muscle exercise, right? Like I just learned to do things better up front. uh, And I didn't leave as much technical debt up front every time either. And so those things make a big difference. So that refactoring isn't just, you know, coming back three months later. A lot of my refactoring happens before I ever actually ask for the code review. Yeah, that's really interesting. The point you made then is quite a great, it's a great one. The refactoring is not just about fixing the code. It's, it's a learning exercise. And actually, if you do the refactor with another person or even as a team, sometimes it's quite fun to do mob programming sessions. I don't know if you've ever tried that. The, the, yeah, the learning you get, you're right, informs the next time you do it. And that's really how you build experience. That's why sometimes we will jump over and create certain package structures just because of our experience, we might start doing that the first time. And that's another thing I think junior developers see that and think, well, I feel like I don't know enough here. So yes, it's, it, it is a journey and refactoring is part of that learning process. Yeah, I think, I think you, you, this is very, very important what you just said, Matt, because I think um, the sort of my habits stem from having having done these kinds of things over and over and over again. So I already have sort of a well-worn path, right, in my mind about what the final um, state should look like. So I sort of, um, for at what is at low cost to me, right, early on, I sort of preset some things, right, I don't have, because I don't have to think about them that hard because I know I'm going to get there anyway, even before the first PR. So that, that big jump, right, you know, the, that seemingly big jump for a junior developer, like maybe sort of a barrier and they're there, they start basically stressing themselves out and thinking, Oh, like, why, why can't I, why can't I do it that way? Right. What, what am I missing? Why, why am I doing this wrong? Why can't I get this? Right. So, you know, if you're listening to <laughs> junior developer, it's not you, right. It's just experience, right. The experienced folks basically have seen enough patterns, right. They've seen enough things that can, they can start to, start to anticipate certain problems in certain ways they need to sort of structure their code and sort of get, get a leg up on that. Right. But it's still at the end, like, like we're saying, you still need to, you're still doing sort of a, a continuous refactoring even before you get to the first PR, even before people look at that, basically at the code, you, you, you're doing that sort of refactoring because you're like, Oh, okay. I set up these things here. Let me, let me, I've thought about this domain a little more. Maybe you got some new information from, from externally and that informs your thinking, informs your decision-making and you go back and you start removing things around a little bit. But it's, 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 it's an experience, right? That's, that's, that, that's at play there. Not, not some pre-formulated way that you should get that, that you, you're, you're don't know about. That's some secret that, you know, developers are hiding from you that you don't know about. It's more, it's really experience less than, less than anything else. I think what that generally means is as a junior developer or like somebody new to go, whatever, if you're trying to figure out the right way to structure your stuff, your go code, one of the great ways is if you join a team with experienced developers, you can submit PRs, and even if they're not perfect, your team can walk you through the process of like, here or why we're going to change these things. You know, it's a really good learning experience. So that works really well for a team that has some experienced developers. 
Do you have any advice for people who are either kind of on their own or people who are, you know, maybe the entire team is new to go? Hmm. I would always say open source is a nice place to go. And if you don't have a team, you know, the open source community can be that team to some extent. And generally speaking in Go, I like to think that we are very friendly and welcoming to new people. Um, sometimes we don't always get it perfect. You know, we can, if you, you can say things and they come across a bit harsh sometimes and things, but generally speaking, I like to think of Go as being quite welcoming. So that's a nice way to do it. If you, if you go and look at an existing project and contribute to a, a, a project, then that, that's a way to get a bit more of that experience. I think one of the other things too, and, and I get this question a lot, it's kind of related to what you're asking, is when I'm training um, new corporate developers, because you're right, that is mostly who I'm usually training, is they always ask me this question, and it's, can you point me to the best practices for package design, for package layout? And the interesting thing about it is Go is still a relatively young language. And what we're still finding is even, we'll call it experienced Go developers that you want to be, uh, is that we're still learning. If I look back at my code every six months, since I've written code starting in 2012, every six months looks like it's a completely different developer stepped in. Not even kind of the same person. Um, and it's shocking. And I can almost tell you like what year I wrote the code based on the style it was written in from my own code. It, it's, it's shocking. And so it's a really hard one to answer, right? So when I get the question, you know, what's that best practice? It's kind of like what we started the show out with, right? We put out five or six links and said, well, here's a whole bunch of ideas. They all have pros and cons, but there is no one single winner and there is no best practice. The only best practice I will tell you is to write the code. That's what you have to do. And then you have to refactor, but you can't not write the code. And I also tell people too, and I think this is really good, like from what John was saying, don't jump into the deep end. If you're new to Go, and you've seen this really cool talk on how to structure these Go projects, and you don't even understand the basics of Go yet, you're going to regret that decision because it's not going to work out for you. And you're just going to, you're going to create more technical debt that way than if you'd have just done it some way that you can understand to refactor later. Right. That can be a form of premature optimization. Yeah. That, that would be my advice to somebody just starting out would be Create a, if it's a package, create the file with the same name as the package, like you say, Corey, because by the way, you may not need more files as well. And, and then you just have a, that file. Then you also have the test file always next to it and go from there and set off on the journey and write the code and, and, and see. Yeah. Um, and ask for help too. You know, that I, I'd always, I'd be happy if someone tweeted me and said, could you check out this package and give me your thoughts on it? I quite like doing that. So I always uh, am happy to receive those kinds of requests. And, but you, like you say, it, there aren't, it's, we can't just write a list and say, follow these rules and you'll be fine. But we, I don't think we can ever really do that, if I'm honest. I think it's, it's all about trade-offs. Um, I wonder, though, there's something that I always do and I always advocate for. And that is the mono repo of having everything for a whole company in one GitHub repo. I've done this and I love it. I love the fact that a single PR can contain some documentation changes, the API tweaks, some of the UI to make those changes happen. Uh, maybe some database things as well. I love that that can all go as one PR 
that gets merged in at the same time. You know, you don't you don't ever have to worry in that case too much about components being out of sync. But like John, I work on tiny teams generally, so that's much easier to do. But there are big companies that have mono repos. Can I just say one thing for context for everybody who you know? Since you're all just listening, I get to watch one of the one of the panelists shake his head no, while another one shakes his head yes, while Matt's saying that. <laughs> So uh, there's definitely a difference of opinions here with some people. So don't feel like you have to agree with Matt. Oh, you have to. Matt's always right. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things about monorepos, I guess, to to piggyback on that is that, you know, dependency management is a pain. End of story, right? Like it's it's always been very painful and go uh, and we're getting better at it. And we're not going to go into that whole whole conversation. But what it does solve as a monorepo is it solves all of your local dependency management and that's a real kicker because I've worked on projects where we had a monorepo and then we split to a non-monorepo. And I think I spent more time by the end of that project getting everything in sync because I would have five commits lined up. You know, it's one for this repo, one this repo, one this repo, one this repo. The one commit was the change I made. The other four commits were getting every all the other packages to use that commit. Uh, and then you had to have mm-hmm. all your testing framework set up to be able to use those right commits. Um, it was a lot of work and it was a real pain. And I really did miss when we had a monorepo. So I'm a big monorepo fan. So earlier Matt was talking about like getting the freedom to refactor when you need to and like not being locked into one version of it and how sometimes with management that's hard. I do sometimes wonder if part of the reason microservices are so popular is because you know it's such a small unit that you're not, even if that one thing is locked into some design you don't like, it's not the whole thing. It's that one small thing. The next microservice we start from scratch and we can learn from our mistakes. So I will say that they're even like, you know, the, not just the cost of using it and implementing it and, and you're making changes, like you said, there are other costs to having one big monorepo where, you know, if somebody starts off with a bad pattern and you kind of want to just keep using it for consistency's sake, a monorepo can, it can get really big at that point. Yeah, but it's worth saying that just because you have a monorepo, that doesn't say anything about the deployment or the architecture of your application. So it doesn't mean you have a monolith because you have a monorepo. You can still have microservices in that. At MachineBox, we had, we had for the whole lifespan, of since the very beginning, we had one repository. And there was a folder in there called boxes and then subfolders for each of the different capabilities that we had. And they were our products. And then we had our website in there too. We had some legal things in there. It was, it was uh, very nice and very simple, but they, each of those things was with their own tiny little component that we deployed in sometimes interesting and different ways. The, the thing with monorepos is that you're, you're, you're going to need tooling around around how you, you do deployments, how you do C, CI and CD, and how you do, um, how you sort of manage and, and, and sort of orchestrate things, right? So you need, you usually need tooling, right, um, um, with that, whereby with a, with a single um, project. So I, I kind of understand what, what John was saying is that if you have a small, if you have a small project, say, well, it can be a microservice, but it doesn't have to be small. I've seen I've seen very big microservices, <laughs> but uh, for the sake of argument, right? So if you have if you have a, a small, relatively speaking, project um, that's in its own repo, right? You can you can do you can try certain things, right? And and, and that project that perhaps is prohibitive, right, on, on the mono repo, right? You can try a different deployment model. You can try a different uh, um, 
um, approach of, of doing your CI. So there's 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 some flexibility. It's a tra- like everything else in, in, in engineering, it's a trade off, right? So, but for me, like I've seen I've seen the model repo work well when you have enough engineers around that you can sort of you know peel off one or two of them to go build the tooling necessary to to make the whole team productive. If it's just you and and you know maybe a couple of other folks. Um, you know, again, you're gonna you're gonna have to sort of uh, experiment and see where the sweet spot is. But generally speaking, with monorepos, you need tooling and you need people that are gonna take care of that tooling in the long term. Yeah, I must admit that continuous integration is more difficult in a monorepo. For those that don't know, continuous integration is you can get it so that when you push when you create a pull request, it automatically runs a set of tests. Uh, it, or and do some other activities uh, for you before you then merge into master. And so, of course, if you have a big repo, you have to do extra work to figure out what's changed in order. Like, I, I don't need to run all the tests. I only need to really run these few that have touching what's changed. Uh, at Machinebox, we ran every test, and that just meant that meant we we made sure that the tests ran extremely quickly. Uh, but yes, that is it is more difficult um, when you do that. And of course, the other thing is for open source projects, if you've got a package that you're going to open source, then that that should just be its own repo because that's just how we do packages in Go. So, but but for company work, I I I, I must admit I just I'm in love with the mono repo at the moment. So I have a, a different topic real quick while we're talking about structuring Go projects. One of the questions I get that's related to structuring is actually how many lines should be in a file and how many files should you have per package? Mm. So see, people want to know what they should be doing, don't they? They want to be told these answers to things. And I just don't think there's an answer to that. I'm quite happy with quite long files as long as it's all as long as it all makes sense. And the way I structure Go files, I tend to have I, I do it by importance. So if there's a if it's a comments.go file, I'll have the comments struct at the top because that kind of sets the it gives you know it sets the tone for the rest of the file. It tells you this is the sort of data structure that we're working on. And then you might have um, constructors and important functions and then you might have methods and things and all the way down to maybe some little helper functions that are pulled out just so because I can, unit test them easier uh, and they'll tend to be down in the bottom of it so but the, I, I don't know I don't think there's a, a, a maximum limit but I think just naturally I they haven't grown out of uh, out too wild one thing that's interesting to me about that is I feel like we instinctively just want to split things up all the time like we don't like big files. We don't like having like we don't like opening a folder and seeing fifty Go files in there. For whatever reason, we just do not like it. It doesn't matter if it is really easy to navigate. We're still like going to think this is something's wrong here for whatever reason. And it's, I, I guess it's just weird to me at times because you almost have to make the mistake of splitting something up too much before you'll finally take a step back and realize I'm you know like it, it's it's to the point where you're making a package with one function, then you make another package with one function, and finally you're like. Maybe I'm going a little bit extreme here, um, but like you have to almost do it before you believe it and before you you catch on that that might not be the best approach. That's because we 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 tend to we're we're visual creatures, right? So we tend to look at 
right? Um, you, you sort of make um, decisions, whether you realize it or not. You're already making decisions simply by navigating in the photo structure of a project, right? You're, 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 again, if you saw models, controllers, views, you might say, oh, this is an NDC app kind of thing, right? If you saw, you know, a bunch of files in, into, into, you know, the root of the project, you might be like, oh, maybe this is a, a library, you know, like a, something that's meant to be imported or something, right? Uh, if you saw a CMD folder, you're like, oh yeah, this thing's going to build, you know, an executable at some point. So there's, there's some, 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 that's part of the idiomatic, right? Um, quote unquote, idiomatic go, right? There's, there's some expectations that is set by both the community and perhaps within your own team that helps you sort of navigate and understand. This is part of the readability thing, right? But there's no hard and fast rules, right? Like, like Matt's saying, there's no hard and fast rule on how many, you know, the lines you should have in, in a Go file or how many, you know, file Go files you should have in a folder. It's all going to depend on sort of how you reason about the code. And the funny thing is some people reason uh, naturally, they reason differently. So for some people, they could be, the same project could be organized, you know, 12 different ways, right? And it would still make sense to when they come back to it. So it's going to, there's going to, there's going to be a bit of a, um, so if, if you're not sort of the, the originator of a project, when you, then you start navigating one, you're going to have to sort of uh, um, try to put yourself in the shoes of whoever created it, right? Um, if you can, uh, and then sort of, sort of, uh, kind of helps you think the way they might have perhaps thought in order to assemble, right? The, the, the project structure you're looking at. One of the other patterns I picked up too, when it comes to that, you know, when it comes to how do I know when to break a package up or where does it belong is that like, let's take your comments package that you had. Um, and all of a sudden it starts to evolve and I can feel like there's two concepts in here, right? So suddenly comments is bigger than comments, right? So, you know, it's time to refactor this package and let's just take the concept. Maybe there's a formatter. Like I now have this fancy thing that formats my comments, but it's got all this logic in it and it feels like it's related to comments. But it's definitely its own concept at this point, right? It, it just belongs. It's too big to belong in here. And what I've seen is I've seen people, you know, create a comments underscore format or package or something like that. And this is where that nesting, I think, comes in that we talked about earlier. It doesn't have any purpose in Go. It doesn't mean anything special. But under comments package, I would put a formatter package. And so now it's kind of weird because you're going to do formatter dot whatever, right? So it's going to read like that in your code. It doesn't have any comment specific thing in that naming, but it lives underneath the comments package. And what I find is that I like to drop that into that nesting structure. And then I always find I reach down from my packages, but I never reach back up from my packages. So comments can reach into formatter, but formatter should never reach into commenter or up, up the chain anywhere. In fact, commenter typically won't reach anywhere up anywhere in my entire system. So that's one of the patterns I picked up that works out well. And I'm curious if you've picked up any patterns like that. That's where, that's where your internal um, package would, would benefit as well. Um, for those who don't know, like Go has basically this, this mechanism whereby if you put uh, um, Go files inside of an internal package, right? Only the, only the things that are in that package and below are accessible, right? Uh, um, in, in, in that project. So that could, that's a nice way of actually sort of hiding and preventing, right? Things that are in that internal package from sort of, uh, um, peeking out, so to speak, into other things. I'm curious just on that one right there. And I've gotten bit by the internal package only when it came to black box testing. And I'm curious, maybe I just, maybe there's a convention I'm not aware of, but, um, I once put all of the, uh, proto files in internal. And then when it came to testing, you had to have those structures, right? But you couldn't get at them in a black box test. Mm -hmm. So how do you solve that problem? Hmm. That is a good one. I haven't come across that particular issue myself. Okay. And again, I, I just tend to do black box. I mean, again, so the way I solved it was I did internal testing, right? Like that was the only right. way to solve it because I had to have access. But mm -hmm. that is where internal has bit me before. And I find that I reserve internal 
for something like truly like this is private, private. Like I don't want anybody to ever touch this. On the naming of those sub packages, Corey, I actually will repeat the name. So if it's comments and then you've got comments formatter, I will call it comments formatter. So you do get a bit of that uh, repetition in the <laughs> folder structure, but I think having the having the package name clear when you come to use it is worth it. HTTP test package is an example in the standard library that does this. The package is net slash HTTP slash HTTP test. So, you, you know, you, that in a way you feel like that's redundant when you look at it at that point, but in your code, then you get to say HTTP test dot something. Yeah, there's some real validity to that because I think at the end of the day, um, when I read code, especially when I'm coming to a new project and I see something being referenced and I don't know what it is. And then when I finally track it out, I'm like, oh, it's this sub package over here. It makes total sense where it was, but I was frustrated that I had to chase this down to find out what I was looking at. Um, yeah, it's kind of optimized for writing, not really reading. Right. And I like to optimize for reading. Yeah. Completely agree. This episode is brought to you by StrongDM. Manage and secure remote access to any database, any server, on-prem or in the cloud, and environments. They make it easy for DevOps teams to enforce the security and controls InfoSec teams require. So if your engineers need access, you need StrongDM. So what can StrongDM do for your team? First off, more control, less hassle. Grant or revoke access to any database or server in one command. Use your SSO to manage access to every database, every server and environment. Second, total visibility. StrongDM upgrades your audit logs, log every permission change, every query, every SSH, and every RDP command and know who issued those changes. And of course, faster SOC 2 compliance easily enforce access controls and instantly answer auditors' questions. Head to strongdm.com slash go time to learn more and request a free demo. Again, strongdm.com slash go time. So like we talk about having the folder structure like this and how you're always reaching down. Go is probably the first language I've used that doesn't allow cyclical imports, which I know coming from Ruby, I feel like everybody just does it naturally there all the time. So it was a you know big change. Um, I guess my question for you guys would be, like, do you agree with that decision? Is that something that, you know, like, I, I think now that you get used to it, it's like, okay, we're designing all these things to go work around that. Is there a time where you kind of wish, I wish just go, you know, go just had cyclical imports? There has been for me in the past, but usually that's because I've, br I've tried to break things out too early. One of the advantages of just having everything in one package is that all your dependencies are just there. You can't, you're not importing things. So you don't have, uh, you can't have that uh, cyclical dependency thing. But I, I do like it for the, uh, just for the, it's kind of forces things to be more simple having that rule. So yeah, but again, I might just be used to it or it fits with the way I already write code anyway. In Ruby, yeah, I mean, you can do anything, can't you, in Ruby? You can literally do anything. Which I used to do Ruby, by the way. I loved Ruby. But you can do anything. You can, well. I, it's like in JavaScript, right? If you have a JavaScript function that takes a string, you can just pass the browser in instead. 
Do you know what I mean? It's like, what? <laughs> so, yeah, I like type safety. I do. And uh, I like these kind of rules that constrain us. And, and I find that it helps me be more creative. Yeah, I think that from a cyclical dependency standpoint, when I first started Go and I came from Ruby as well, I got bit by that a lot. And it took me a while to figure it out. And I can't remember the last time I've ever had that error creep up when I compiled Um, Because you've just become so ingrained where everything is its own concept, right? Like everything's contained in its own package and you just, you know, by using simple interfaces and and decoupling, like it just becomes just second nature. Um, But yeah, the only time I think it really bit me was when I was first doing Go and I accidentally used the name of the package inside the package I was in. Like, you know, I was in the foo package, I had foo dot something, and I just didn't realize I did it. And I got this massive set of errors for cyclical imports, and I didn't know what it meant. I spent three days refactoring, tearing it apart, only to find out I just had to remove the foo dot because that was just a typo, basically. Um, so that, that was my first learning with cyclical you know, dependencies, yeah. but yeah. <laughs> that's, that's true. I've, I've come across that one. Yeah. I did, yeah thankfully, I haven't spent three days on it, but yeah, I, I did. I did run across that. Um, I mean, usually with the cyclical import stuff, that usually is usually a hint that I have a design problem. I have an issue, right? There's maybe there's, a, there's a, another type that's screaming to get out. Um, maybe uh, I need to leverage interfaces more. But that's usually like a like a strong like a, a loud yell, right? That, that's basically saying, "Hey, you have a design issue in this code." So that's that's when I usually take a step back, sit down, figure out exactly what I'm trying to do. Maybe I need to introduce a proper abstraction or something. Uh, and then usually, like uh, it's it's once you sit down and think about it, that the 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 issue typically, at least for me, will will, will sort of rear its head out. So I'm like, oh, okay, I'm I'm trying to do this, and really, what I really want to do is is that, right? So it's it's really a, like a sign of a design issue. It's interesting. There's another thing that dri- that drives us towards these problems, and that is our obsession with writing dry code. So if we have two packages and we and we or actually when we have a package and we're writing a new one and then we want to use some similar concepts that we've used in another package, our for some reason our very natural tendency is to immediately create another a third package and will that can become a dependency of these other two packages. That's how, certainly how I think about, you know, that's my kind of initial uh, reaction to when I encounter that. I want to dry the code up. And I found that if I can resist that temptation, I end up with much better code. So instead of taking out things that are common, leave them there, repeat them, even copy and paste from another package. Um, it's okay to do that. And I call it moist code. And I think we should all write moist code. (laughs) Oh, I like that. I like that. I I mean, we've, we've reused, like I've been on teams where, you know, like, um, I feel like there's always this need, especially from junior developers who are kind of seeking feedback and input and mentorship kind of thing. They're looking and saying, well, I know, I know you said don't refactor too soon, but when is the right time, right? To refactor code that I'm seeing that's being repeated. Right. So like eventually I had to come up with a rule. I was like, okay, well, you don't you don't refactor this code on, uh, until you've seen it at least three times, right? Mm. Then then you can refactor, right? Obviously, you know it's it's you know, it's arbitrary. I came up with that. I'm like that's for me. That's been a sweet spot. So I'm like that's sort of what I recommend. But you know, usually I won't bother like you know refactoring repeated code at all until I've seen it two, at least two or three times. I don't think three is arbitrary. What three is, it's quite interesting. I think it's right. So the first one is just the first time you've done it. So fine, that's number one. The second one is the where all the temptation is. 
Because now like, oh, we're doing something similar. So that's the one that needs the most resistance. And then the third time when you come to look at it, now you've got three different examples of where this is going to be used. You're much better placed to design appropriate abstraction at this point. And you can do it based on real data. You've got real mm -hmm. code, you've got real stuff. You're not trying to imagine it. Right. I think the third time is also important because you, you get a chance to see if either one of the first two evolved or changed. Because I think there's a lot of times mm -hmm. where we see two mm -hmm. things and we're like, these are the same. But realistically, they're slightly different in some subtle way. And you don't know it until like you know a little while later. So if you wait till the third time, you're giving that code time to actually show you what the differences are going to be. So just jumping back to cyclical imports, though, if you don't mind. Um, like where I see it come up the most is... I mean, you want to cycle, cycle, cycle back, back? Is that what you're saying? Um, <laughs> Can't we give nope. you an error? <laughs> uh, so like where I see it pop up is people will get this idea of, okay, I'm going to try to split my code into like, here's my comments package and here's my users package. And it usually stems from things like relations in, in like a SQL database where like a user has many comments and a comment has a user. And that's almost always where it comes from. And it's, it, it's, it's mm. hard at times when you see people doing that because you're like, I get why you're doing this, but like we need to think about how we're structuring our code and you know, some different stuff like that just kind of uh, you know, get around it. So I guess one of the big reasons I bring it up is I don't want people to feel bad if they run into it. That doesn't mean you're you know, necessarily designing poorly or anything. Um, it is a challenging problem at times, and there are languages that kind of make you like make it easy to ignore that problem or just to you know, just move on and it doesn't matter. And Go is just unfortunately not one of them in that way. And that's where you end up with the user comments package. <laughs> well, sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or you end up with a lot of code that's just kind of switching between types yeah. as well. Well, you I can, think the other yeah. thing is, like Matt said, people don't want to, or maybe it was Johnny, but basically people don't like to repeat stuff. So like people don't like to, ha like they like to have one struct and this maps to the database and that's it. And they don't like to like rewrite that anywhere. And I've seen code where having multiple different versions of the same struct that's you know in the database, rep you know, sometimes that's useful. I love that you said, as Johnny has already said, people don't like to repeat things. Well, <laughs> I like to repeat things, yeah. apparently. It's worth, it's uh, worth repeating. <laughs> apparently, I'm really good at you know, cycling and repeating. <laughs> okay, so I, one thing I did find interesting is we're talking about code structure, and one of the first things that almost always comes up is folders and you know, file names, that sort of stuff. Matt, you had had me look at your, your, your talk you were giving at GopherCon, and one of the things that was interesting to me is that you're talking about how you structure your, your, how you write your apps, and a lot of that's how you structure code and where things go. But you never once really mention folders that I'm aware of. But yet it was still really insightful. Mm -hmm. Like, I guess, do you guys know, like, why do you think that's the case? Do you think it's just people just don't understand how to organize things or, you know, and they just get so caught up on the folders or, you know, is there something else going on? Well, I, d I tried to write about that in that blog post and I tried to talk about that in my HTTP talks but the problem is as we've talked about it, if you provide like the end state of something then that doesn't necessarily help junior developers um, to, to see the sort of rationale and the reason why that we've ended up in that position and sometimes depending on the where you are in the project so really the context of the project Sometimes I do it differently myself. 
So I don't find that there was enough of a common set of patterns. There's a couple I talk about. Like I talk about, I keep all my roots in one file called roots.go. So this is where I break the rule of having uh, things grouped by responsibility. And I do that for a good reason because I get a, I get a kind of landscape. I can see visually the entire service in one place. I find that to be very useful. So I sort of break my own rules sometimes as well. Um, and I never, I just never found enough commonality for folders and files and things. Okay. So I guess to sort of, we don't have a ton of time left. Do you guys want to talk about approaches you've tried that you've come to regret or mistakes you've made? Because I feel like, you know, we always talk about like, here's the end, the end state, like this is what we should be doing, but we don't really talk about, you know, what we've tried, what didn't work well about it, you know, things like that, or even whether or not trying it was worthwhile. From my standpoint, there's some approaches I always want to try because they sound fantastic. And then it comes down to, I don't try them because I just have to get the code shipped. So there's always kind of that regret where there's, there's a couple of them, especially some of the talks by Kat, like she's got some really interesting approaches out there and I really want to give them a go one of these days. But I also know that there's a lot more work involved there because everything's abstracted significantly more than what I normally do. Um, and so I don't know where to go with that. One of these days I might try it, uh, and I'm really curious how it works out in in practice. But fundamentally, I do end up with a lot of the same same packages that I always have. You know, I have like my CMD package. Um, I have my domain package. I have a lot of the same ones. Um, I don't have models. I don't have utils. Uh, and it took me a long time to agree with not having a models package. It really did. I fought that for a long time like what is the problem with having the models package and it really just does come down to it does say nothing it says nothing and i think if your package says nothing about it just in its name you've made a mistake that's a really hard one to understand and i can't convince you of that i'm not going to try to convince you of that i'm not going to tell you what's wrong or right i'm hoping that you just come to the that conclusion on your own after you've done it enough times but that's a hard pill to swallow for a lot of people it was a hard pill for me to swallow so would you say that you're saying like they have to do that enough on their own to come to that conclusion. So it's almost like I, I guess I would get the impression that if you hadn't done it enough times, you might not have ever come to that conclusion. Like you almost had to make those mistakes to to start to learn, you know, gradually over time, like, oh, I can actually express this better in this other way. Right. And I guess here's the way I would like to explain the models, right? So let's take a user because we all have a user in most of our packages. Um, and when you have a models.user, it's just this data struct. There's no behavior around it. Maybe there's a validation. Maybe there's some simple things, but it tends to be this really shallow package of just a bunch of data structs and some really simple tests. And it just kind of feels like it's just kind of hanging out there. But when you have a user package, suddenly becomes a very rich package. It says a lot about itself and it manages its own behavior. And I think that's where, when I flipped over to that type of paradigm, that my code became better, more understandable. Um, I mean, I may have a domain package that in there has a user package and has a, um, you know, comments package or whatever, or maybe they're flat within domains. It doesn't really matter. But the, the idea there is it's no longer just a data struct. It's not something simplistic in its concept. It's the entire, the entire thing. It's the whole concept, which makes a difference for me. Early on, the, the, some of the very first mistakes I was making was basically uh, to have package bloat. Basically, I'd, pack, I'd basically create a package inside of a package inside of a package. And it was like, 
it was like, why, why, what value, right? I had to basically ask myself, what value am I getting from, from splitting up my, um, creating this, this, this deep hierarchy of things? Like what, why, why am I thinking about it that way? So that's them from being able to say, well, yeah, I can see myself reusing this bit, right? This portion, this package, right? Out of, out of, you know, uh, this project in a different project, right? And I'm like, well, then, then I'm creating these dependencies between things, right? That, that I don't need to have, right? If I really need to use some of the concepts inside of this project, just copy the darn file. <laughs> just go put it back over there, right? Like, why am I creating these nested dependencies and hierarchies in my, in my code? So I started basically, you know, other than having sort of a, um, um, sort of the, this, this ritual really of, of, for certain projects of creating that C, my, my CMD folder and putting things in there. I really start out flat, right? And I, and I let the, the design, right? I let the domain sort of inform, like, where do I need to create packages and, and packages under packages, right? So I think that that notion right there is something basically I carried over from other um, frameworks and other environments, other languages that I kind of needed to leave at the door. Like so many things in Go, you kind of have to leave a lot of things at the door, right? And learn to appreciate Go for what it is before bringing things and expecting certain things to, to sort of expecting the language to sort of bend to your will, so to speak. So I, um, you can do, you can write, <laughs> you can write Go like you write Java, uh, um, like you write Ruby. Um, I, I don't recommend it. It's, it's going to end up biting you, but, you know, you can do that. But it, I, I'd, I'd caution that basically start out, you know, again, Go is was meant to be a simple way, right, of, of, of coding, of programming, really. So approach your design the same way, right? Start simple. And let the let the domain you work in sort of inform like where where you set up boundaries. I think that's great advice. One of one of the mistakes I made quite early was I fell I I really fell in love with Go interfaces, and I never really fell out of love with them to be honest. So if I had a package that had say a greeter type and a, a new greeter constructor, so something like that, I would always have an interface there too. Uh, and sometimes I'd hide the the struct and I would only return this interface because I just felt like now there's an interface other people can write greeters and they can write mock versions if they need to for testing and things. And sometimes I would even provide the mock version in the package for testing to help with testing because it's so important. And eventually I got some code review probably from somebody on Twitter uh, which uh, which sort of pointed out actually you don't need to do that you can just return the, the the concrete type the struct and if somebody else needs an interface they can write their own interface in Go we have this duck typing they call it structural typing so you the only requirement for a struct or a type to implement an interface is it just has to have the same methods you don't have to explicitly say like in some languages that I implement this interface explicitly so you users can write their own interface then they can use that interface in their code it's you can even use that as a storytelling opportunity and not include every field if this greeter struct had 10 methods but i'm only using one of them i could just have an interface with that one method makes it dead clear what i'm going to be using this type for and it's less work when it comes to mocking or writing new implementations to replace it, so I think one of the um, one of the approaches, Johnny, you said, you know, Go is like a simple. It's meant to be a simple way of programming, and I think it's it's worth thinking about, like, what's the easiest thing to do, and and be be a bit lazy too. 
do less. Do do the minimum you can do, and then you like so you know I wouldn't then bother with the interface if I was doing less, and that tends to be quite a good way to think about it. Now, of course, there are times when you have to do some work. Hopefully, that means we've got a job, so that's good. And at that time, then you have to do some work. So then you do it. But again, do the minimum. Do the absolute minimum uh, if you can. And you find that you 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 defer a lot of decisions to to the time when you're better placed to make them. Kind of like using defer. Yes. <laughs> that's my favorite keyword, by the way. All right. So I think that's about it. Uh, I think we've pretty much hit a little bit over an hour mark. So thank you, everybody, for joining us. Um, if you haven't joined us on the GoTime Slack channel and the Gopher Slack, you should definitely check that out, too. Uh, ben Johnson and some others have been chatting, and Ben has written a very you know, very awesome article about you know structuring your Go applications. I think most or all of us have probably read it. So um, I know it's definitely influenced the way I've designed some of my code, and it's really helped. So you should check out that sort of stuff, too. Ask questions. Um, we really appreciate you guys tuning in. All right, thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Go Time. If you're not yet, hang with us in Go for Slack. We have a channel called Go Time FM. Look it up, you'll find us. Hang with us during the live shows, connect with other members of the community, share stories, share code, share coffee recipes, whatever. It's a lot of fun. Also, we have discussions at changelaw.com on every episode. Head to changelaw.com slash go time, find this episode and discuss it with the community. Also, thanks to Fastly, our bandwidth partner, Rollbar, for helping us move fast and fix things, and Linode for hosting the Changelaw platform. Our music is produced by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And if you want to hear more awesome podcasts like this, subscribe to our master feed. It's one feed to rule them all, plus some extras that only hit the master feed. Head to changelaw.com slash master or search for changelaw master in your podcast client. You'll find us. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week. guess what brain science is officially launched episode number one is on the feed right now so head to changelaw.com slash brain science to listen to subscribe and to join us on this journey of exploring the human mind once again changelaw.com slash brain science or search for brain science in your favorite podcast app